he felt passionately that we need to have more women in therapeutic endoscopy. Why? Why did he feel that way? Well, I think one, you know, you want the makeup of the physicians to kind of match the makeup of the patients that we're seeing. Okay. Because it's been shown in multiple studies, not in therapeutic endoscopy per se, but in medicine in general, that, you know, having a physician provider that kind of matches your demographics often leads to better outcomes. Hi, and welcome back to Endocast. I'm your host, Leslie Bishop, and this is episode 19 with our physician guest, Anji Shin from Johns Hopkins Hospital. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Shen, welcome to Endocast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to get a chance to chat with you. I appreciate you taking some time out of DDW. Well, thanks for inviting me. We're going to be talking about EUS, but before we do that, I think it'd be interesting to hear what drew you to endoscopy or even medicine and then therapeutic endoscopy? So I actually was not one of those people who grew up thinking that I was going to be a doctor. Oh, interesting. Um, so I actually had no idea I wanted to become a physician until probably sophomore year of college, I think. You know, I went in as a freshman, bright-eyed, completely undifferentiated, had no clue as to what I wanted to do with my life. And then along the way, I found that I liked the sciences and, um, and then more... I got into sort of biology and the sciences, I wanted to be applied to something. And the most logical you know, choice would have been medicine. And at that point, um, you know, I, I talked to some of my um, senior co- uh, friends and I found that medicine seemed to fit what I was looking for. So I actually didn't decide to become pre-med until probably my second year of college. Oh, wow. It's interesting because a few of the doctors I've talked to knew when they were like four and five years old, I'm thinking, how on earth could you possibly know that so early? And I feel the same way. I had no idea even until I was like 19, 20, I think, um, that I wanted to become a doctor. And then even after I decided to become a physician, I think each step of the way, I was pretty undifferentiated with the next step. So, you know, I finished medical school uh, or during medical school, I was also trying to decide what specialty to go into. And literally I was truly undifferentiated. I saw all the different specialties, all the different sub-specialties, and then finally decided on internal medicine because I, I like the variety and the breadth of sort of pathologies and patient care that you can provide. And then even when I became an internal medicine intern and resident, I actually did not uh, decide on GI until probably second year of residency. Wow. And then what was it that pulled you to that? Again, I like the variety. I think I kind of figured out that I like procedural subspecialties and I like working with my hands and of those within internal medicine you kind of either fall into interventional cardiology or pulmonary or GI and compared to um, the other fields the GI actually allowed you to look at multiple different organs and different pathologies so I like variety I don't like doing the same thing all the time so okay. then I kind of fell into GI And after I became a GI fellow, I actually didn't decide to become an endoscopist probably until my second or third year. This is unbelievable. So I was kind of late to the game. (laughs) I I didn't know from the age of four that I wanted to become a physician. And even when I was a GI, first year GI fellow, I didn't know that I wanted to become an endoscopist until I got my hands on the scope. And then when did you say, okay, I'm going to do advanced. I'm going to do the most difficult endoscopy there is. Probably towards the end of my first year and beginning of my second year okay. of fellowship. And you know, that actually happened because I had 
attendings encouraged me to think about doing endoscopy. Because when I first started, I actually, probably about the midpoint of my first year, I was getting more and more interested in endoscopy and what it offered to our patients in terms of being able to provide therapy and um, interventions for different disease processes. I actually had a, an attending who told me that while they thought that I had good hands in terms of scopes, <laughs> that they didn't think that I would be a good fit for advanced endoscopy or therapeutic no. endoscopy. Did that make you want to do it more? You know, I was actually kind of wavering back and forth. So I really, you know, trusted my, um, you know, faculty members and my attendings and, and their assessment. And they, they said, I, I don't think you would be a good fit for a therapeutic endoscopy. But then on the flip side, I actually had multiple other attendings who told me that they really thought that I should try and pursue this because they thought I would be a good fit. So, you know, I think it kind of shows that you kind of know what you want to do. And then sometimes you hear a lot of noises on the outside, but it also, it's very helpful to have supporters, people who actually um, encourage you to do what you want to do. So he was kind of an outlier then. The one that said, you might not be good at this. The others outweighed him. Correct. Well, that's awesome. So tell me now, what is the focus of your practice now? I do advanced endoscopy, so EUS, ERCP. Um, I like to focus uh, mostly on GI oncology patients and also looking at some of the precursor lesions to things that can develop into cancers in the GI tract. So that's sort of where my uh, focus of uh, patient population is right now. So let's shift to talk about EUS. Mm -hmm. And the first question I have is just, can you talk about the shift that we have that's going on from FNA to FNB? as I deal a lot with the, the GI oncology world. So pancreatic cancer um, is a huge uh, portion of my patient population, actually. And for most of the mass lesions that we uh, do a fine needle biopsy or aspirations, I have exclusively shifted over to the FMB, the fine needle biopsy needle, because it provides better tissue acquisition. It actually allows you to have intact um, tissue architecture and morphology, which is important, especially for some of the malignancies when they're trying to figure out what is the best uh, therapies that are out there for them. And having intact tissue architecture as well as better core samples allows you to do additional testing in terms of molecular studies. You can do next generation sequencing and all of those require bigger samples than what typically FNA needles can provide. Yeah, so talk about that. How is that affecting your treatment algorithm now that that larger sample can allow you to do all those things? So I personally do not treat them, but my oncology colleagues are using some of that information to tailor their chemotherapy regimen in terms of you know, risk stratification as well as the types of chemotherapy um, agents that they're using. So do we have enough data? I know this is an oncology question, but I'm just curious because I think this personalized medicine stuff is amazing. Are we seeing longer lifespans with patients getting personalized medicine for pancreatic cancer, or is it is it too soon to know? So pancreatic cancer doesn't have as much robust data as some of the other cancers that are out there. So we're kind of using the examples from, for example, lung cancer or colon cancer, and with the hopes that we can find better targets and more personalized targets for each of the patients. Okay. So there's a lot of studies going on and research going on, and all of these additional larger core samples are actually helping to kind of push that science forward. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. So if you've moved mostly to F B, are there any candidates that are still good for FNA? So for most of the cystic lesions that we see, unless I see a solid component that I need to target, I would primarily only use the FNA needle. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what about your suction technique for FNB? So for FNB, I tend to use a slow pull technique um, by, you know, remove the stylet small bits at a time to kind of give you that capillary action. When we do um, aspiration of cysts, then I exclusively use this, uh, the suction with the syringes. And then I know a lot of places are moving to Mohs. 
Are you still using rows? Have you moved to modes? What are your thoughts on that? If you had asked me this question about a month ago, I would have told you that we were 100% rows, where we were fortunate enough to have a cytotechnologist who could come bedside for us. As with many, many uh, sectors within our medical healthcare system, um, the staffing shortage has become real, um, even at our institution. So we will probably have to start moving to Mo's uh, for a portion of our cases. Thankfully, probably about 50 to 75% of our cases are still being supported by Rows. But for those remaining, you know, 25%, we may be um, instituting more Mo's in the future. Okay, that's very interesting. But you do need some um, training on it because you need to be able to recognize what is a true core sample versus other stuff that you can get in your needle. And you have to have a sense of what is considered adequate in terms of the tissue acquisition that you see when you do Mo's. So it does require a little bit of training. I, I, I think it's a hurdle that is easily overcome. I think we were spoiled because we were so um, fortunate to have Rose so readily available. But I think if you kind of pull the entire world and all the um, endosonographers out there, I think more people are probably using Mo's than Rose just based on availability. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of nice if you're in an institution that doesn't have pathology available all the time to be able to use that and know it's going to give you a good result. All right, so I want to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about uh, women in endoscopy. We obviously know the number is increasing. I'm, I'm talking mm -hmm. mainly therapeutics. It's increasing, but it's still very low. Mm -hmm. And your institution has done some very interesting things to go against that or to help, to, I guess, to increase the number of women who are pursuing mm -hmm. advanced endoscopy. I'd love to hear you talk about that. So this was sort of a passion of our uh, former chief of GI, where he felt passionately that we need to have w more women in therapeutic endoscopy. Why? Why did he feel that way? Well, I think, one, you know, you want the makeup of the physicians to kind of match the makeup of the patients that we're seeing. Okay. Because it's been shown in multiple studies, not in therapeutic endoscopy per se, but in medicine in general, that, you know, having a physician provider that kind of matches your demographics often leads to better outcomes. And I think it's good to have different perspectives. And just the fact that, you know, 50% of the world are women and, you know, less than 15% of endoscopists were female. So, you know, there's a lot of disconnect there. So I think he felt that we need to have more women in therapeutic endoscopy. And that was a passion of his. What ended up happening is he put a lot of females through the pipeline, through the fellowship, the training program. A lot of us stayed as faculty. And by having more female therapeutic endoscopy faculty, that actually drove more applicants of female therapeutic endoscopy fellows wannabe to try and come into our program because they saw this growth of female therapeutic endoscopy within um, our institution. Okay, wow. So what percent of your fellows are female to male? So it varied from year to year, but oh, probably over the last 10 years, I can we've actually had more female therapeutic endoscopy fellows go through our program than males. That is very interesting. Are you guys the only institution that has those types of numbers? Do you know? I would venture to say probably, and you know, currently because we have put so many females through the pipeline, through the fellowship, we currently at our institution, our therapeutic endoscopy faculty is actually majority females. We actually have more female therapeutic endoscopy attendings on our faculty than males. Okay, that is so interesting. And I can probably confidently say that we are probably the only institution in the United States, if not the probably the world too, actually, now that I think about it. Wow. That where the women therapeutic endoscopy attendings outnumber the men. That is very interesting. Okay, so taking it down to just the most practical level, 
So as females, we generally have smaller hands. And this is the issue of ergonomics is something you're super, super passionate about. And so I'm curious your thoughts on even how Boston Scientific is innovating. We're probably one of the fewer, uh, few institutions where we have multiple females doing EUS um, procedures at that time. Actually, I think I was still a fellow at that time. Oh, when really? We first, okay. uh, um, when our rep actually brought the, the first iteration of the FNA needle that was being marketed. And we were able to kind of use it and play with it. And all three of us categorically said that no we would never use this needle <laughs> because the handle on the FNA needle felt like we were, uh, I don't know, holding onto a, a jackhammer or something. It was so large and so unwieldy and very ergonomically unfriendly for people with small hands that it just was very uncomfortable. And um, we said, I don't care how good the needle tip is, but you know, based on the handle design, 100% we would never buy this needle. And you know, to the credit of Boston Scientific, they actually went back, took our concerns to task, and they actually created the slimline handle design, I think, in response to that. And from, from what I hear is we were not the only ones, but I think there were three of us at the same institution say, saying the same thing. So I think uh, you guys actually took that to heart, which was very kind. And do you think the slimline fixes that issue? I would always say that there's always room for improvement in terms of ergonomics, but compared to the first iteration of the FNA needle handle design we saw, it's a tremendous tremendous amount of improvement. <laughs> I could actually fit my hand around the slim line, which is unusual. And to be fair, you know, I have a special interest in ergonomics because I do have extremely small hands, even amongst the females. So anything that makes it e slightly easier for me to do my procedures and actually be able to do it for a long time is something that I'm passionate about. Okay. And I understand you've actually had, you have some insight on Exalt D and you've had some input on that. So I was curious, just your thoughts in general about Boston Scientific really listening to that feedback and making these ergonomic changes for, it's really not just women, it's anyone that has a small hand. That could be a man too. Right. Um, so I was just curious on your thoughts on that. I've seen multiple iterations of the Exalt D and that whole line of disposable scopes. And you know it's a great opportunity because it is a, a single use scope. It allows the platform to be able to be customizable to multiple different users as well as different indications. And I think that's why the company in general was very receptive to the idea of listening. If I remember correctly, there was a lab several years ago where they actually came up with like 15 different designs of the, uh, the head of the scope in terms of the, the handle design, the placement of the different buttons, some that were just a modification of what we currently have, others which were a complete reworking of how we thought about how to do endoscopy. I thought that was very interesting that they were at least trying to think outside the box of how to make this user-friendly and more ergonomically uh, appropriate for the changing demographics of endoscopists. This has been awesome. I am just going to turn it to you if you have any closing thoughts. I'd love to hear it. First of all, I'd like to thank Boston Scientific for their continuing support of females in endoscopy. You know, they have initiated multiple programs, both nationwide, international, as well as locally, to try and encourage uh, networking within the female uh, GI and endoscopists. The fact that they are listening to some of the concerns in terms of ergonomics and making the instrument fit the user and not the user fit the instrument has been very appreciated and it is something that is noticed amongst the endoscopists especially the female endoscopists i love that all right well this has been awesome thank you very much for coming on today thank you thanks for listening to this episode of endocast please subscribe to the podcast and follow boston scientific endoscopy on our twitter youtube and linkedin feeds you can also visit our virtual education platform educare 
That's edu.bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.